Greetings, humanoids, and welcome to another episode of Total Reboot, the only podcast on the internet that discusses cinema in its totality. My name is Alexi Toliopoulos, and joining me as always is someone I'm going to ask a couple of questions to. If you were to find a tortoise laying upside down mm-hmm. in the middle of the des- desert, what mm-hmm. would you do to it? How did I get to the desert? What would I even be doing out there in the desert? You're wandering around and stuff. Like you like to explore something. You like you like wandering in the desert for a few times. You like it. In this do you scenario. write these questions or do you just read what they give you? They re I they give me the questions, but I like sometimes there might be a follow up question, and I have to really think on my feet about like what what I should ask them to. Make okay, well, guess what? I'm about scenario. to fucking shoot we'll you under the table. Bang, no, bang, no, bang! No, shot, no, you're no, dead. Boy. Oh God! <laughs> well, judging by that outcome, I'd have to say my co-host is Cameron James. That's true. I'm a replicant. Suck my ass. <laughs> Suck my ass. I'm a replicant. <laughs> the rude attitude of a replicant can only be replicated by Cameron James. And we are talking about one of the most seminal films of 1982, the summer of 1982, mm. where blockbusters reign supreme. But this movie, quite infamously, was ill-received on its reception, yep. and it was not a hit yet. Dare we say it, Blade Runner might be the most influential science fiction movie of our, well, not really our year, it's a little bit before we were born, but of modern times. Huge call, but I have to say, yes, I agree with you. This movie is officially influential. It was the first influencer. Nowadays, we have so many goddamn influencers Mm -hmm. on TikTok, Instagram, Mm -hmm. Snapchat, YouTube, (laughs) but in the old days, it was just a movie, and that movie was called Blade Runner. Blade Runner, truly the Abby Chatfield of its era, I must say. People doing the Blade Runner challenge all the way back in 1982. <laughs> trying to make... Yeah, sitting fucking... across from each other at a table asking each other <laughs> questions. Someone trying to make a freaking origami <laughs> unicorn out of a scrap of silver foil. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your relationship with this flick, Alexi. Have you always been a fan was it a film that kept you at arm's length and then surprised you by sneaking you inside its pyramid-like fortress? <laughs> well, let's just say my eyes have always been illuminated by Blade Runner, not unlike the irises that play a prominent role throughout the movie as a symbolic motif of what it is to be human. After all, the eyes are the window to the soul. Um, but I have had a long and varied relationship with Blade Runner. I think I would have seen that director's cut mm. uh, when it was released on DVD. And then there was a final cut released in 2007, which around that time, like I'd seen I'd seen the movie before and I liked it. Um, maybe I saw a little bit too young. Maybe it was a little bit too adult for me to fully grasp. But, you know, I had, I had an eclectic taste then. So I can only blame the movie and not me. So shut up if you don't agree with what I'm saying just yet. But then... <laughs> I'm preempting a lot with my responsibility. You're spiraling right now. <laughs> I'm spiraling right now, dude. But then, as it is known for people around our age, Blade Runner was a text that I had to study in high school. Uh-huh. Um, the New South Wales Department of Education deemed Blade Runner to be 
basically Film Studies 101. I think it is the first film that a lot of people study in Australian high schools mm. uh, to understand how to talk about mise-en-scene in high school, how to write about symbolism, motif, thematic uh, questions, how to talk about those within a movie, not just a book. And we did this in high school as a text in time was the study. Mm. And it was a text in time as compared and contrasted to a novel that was very important to me in high school. Probably one of my favorite novels I studied in school, which was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. If you love subtitles, that's the one. That's right on the subtitle cover page of the book. That's true. And Prometheus is also the name of another science fiction movie by Ridley Scott. Yes. So everything is connected in this world, which is why I'm suspicious about who's in charge at the tippy top of this world. Everything seems to be connected. I think it might be one of the Scott brothers. Wow. Which one? We'll never know. <laughs> the conspiracy could run quite deep. So when you watch this movie in high school, because I, I did as well, I uh, am, mm-hmm. it must be said, a few years older than you. I'm 25 years older than you. And yep. we also studied it. <laughs> we also studied You studied it on original release, the theatrical <laughs> cut of the film. Yeah, we, we went on a field trip to the, the one cinema in town. And we all piled in and stared up at the silver screen. And and uh, when that train pulled into station, all the children <laughs> screamed. <laughs> screamed. <laughs> they screamed. Good Lord. But uh, we studied this as well. I can't remember what the... I think it was for English, but I can't remember... Was it text in time as no, well? No, I don't think so. That That is a phrase I've heard you say quite a bit over the years of knowing you. And it has never once rung a bell for me. As something that, as something zero that, resonance, as something that I can relate to. But I think uh, I remember we did do we did do that thing in English where you you take a modern text and you compare it to an older text, right? Yeah, text in time. Sure, whatever you want to call it. If that's what you want to call it, sure. But I think I don't think we did it with Frankenstein. I feel like we did it with. Um, I feel like we did it with. Brave New World. Cookie Romano. Oh, Brave New World. The awesome. book Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Fantastic name for a science fiction futurist writer. And God, they have great names. Aldous Huxley. Phyllis K. K. Dick. And the K stands for cock. Not many people know that. <laughs> Philip Cock Dick. Um, but uh, I, I think it was about dystopia so i don't know what the hell we would have been studying but i i feel like the word dystopia came up a lot Mm. and it's you know i think of it still to this day when i look at this freaking modern trump era i go okay we're living in a freaking trump's dystopia dude this is it i'm walking around i'm going am i in part of a pro neo non neon noir am i living in the world of blade runner excuse me corporations are so freaking big like the tyrell corp or whatever that could be slowly taking over the world and trying to turn people into synthetic beings. I look around this freaking Trump era and I go, hang on a second, am I in Brave New World? Because everyone is just obsessed with hedonism, sex, and taking Mm -hmm. the drug Soma, a.k.a. the app TikTok. Wow. You know, that's what I think of it. When I see TikTok, I go, okay, that's Soma. That's just the drug Soma from Brave New World. You guys need to put that shit down. Read a fucking book. 
take a walk amongst yeah. the trees like me with the wildlings or whatever they're called in that book yeah that's what we call reading a book taking a walk amongst the trees because books are made out of trees except for in the case of none other than cameron james who recently <laughs> has been bragging that he bought a freaking kindle so he is akin to the cybernetic people of this world <laughs> me i'm analog you're digital bitch yeah that's true <laughs> you're right but i i i remember at the time thinking the movie was cool but also yes. partly thinking it was homework. You know what I mean? Like it was mm. it was cool and I did enjoy it and I was happy that I was getting to watch a Harrison Ford movie at school. But there was yeah. also a big part of me that was like, man, this they're really yeah. sucking the joy out of watching this movie by making me study it and pause at every scene. <laughs> You're complaining to your English teacher, please, sir, can we watch something from the earring era of Harrison Ford? I want to watch something modern. Can we watch fucking Air Force One, please, for fuck's sake? For goodness sake, can we watch Firewall? <laughs> can we please watch Hollywood Homicide, where he's teamed up with Josh Hartnett? It's just one of those movies, for me, that I've always liked mm. and known that I'm supposed to really like, but never mm. really... Uh, let myself fall too deep into it. Maybe until this viewing. I would say some of the magic is lost, maybe by not perhaps by studying it, because I think you unlock so much. This is a very rich text, and I do appreciate that this was a film that I learned how to study and I learned how to talk about films with. Um, So, you know, it's hard to imagine my life without a text this rich in a prominent time of my life where this is something I cared about and I valued a lot and learnt a lot from talking about it. But I do think some of the magic is lost by watching this movie in like 14-minute increments. Mm. We have to pause it and discuss in class. Um, and you can't even watch because of, you know, classes run for like, what, 53 minutes to an hour or something in school, a period runs. So you're kind of like, you can't even watch the movie in one freaking go in like the lecture theater yeah. or you're watching it on like a tu- tubular uh, CRT screen that's trundled into a class on a pair yeah. of wheels. Like it's just, it's not, it's hard to have this film that I've seen so many times and I would say I'm with you. I, I almost feel like every time I revisit Blade Runner, I'm watching it in defiance. I'm almost going to be like, yeah, but come on. What is this movie? Is this really the movie worthy of every 40-year-old man sucking it off to high heaven? I know. And this time when I revisit it, I was like, Harrison Ford whipped that pecker out. I truly am in awe of this film. You wanted it to is- suck him off throughout this whole film. I want to flick that little earring, dangle that earring while I was going down on Harrison. Because I think that this is truly one of the greatest spectacles we've ever seen. And I I wonder how big its influence could have even been if it was not just a cult classic, mm. the way a cult classic that grew into a genuine classic, but if it was immediately heralded as one of the greats of science fiction. Would we have seen even bigger gargantuan movies happen on a scale so huge that are so niche in their specificity and what they're going for in their audience? Like, this is an adult freaking movie. Usually movies this massive have to be like four-quadrant films. Yeah. Look, I think the, the fact that it was a failure and then became a cult success 
is inseparable from why it is as good as it is and why we like it mm-hmm. to this day. So we can't even we can't even speculate. We can't even write a speculative science fiction script of what mm-hmm. the world would have been like if Blade Runner was bigger than Star Wars when it came out. Yeah. We don't even want to go down that path. That is a path too dangerous to explore. But Almost I do, I do think as dangerous as the days of making Blade Runner, which Dangerous Days was a working title of Blade Runner at a point in time, and also the name of a documentary from 2007 about the making of Blade Runner. <laughs> is that the rudest thing you can do to someone? <laughs> I Is it rude to do... Or me 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 me, which is how I snore. I do incredibly rude. They're both <laughs> they're both really disrespectful. <laughs> and if you ever do it to someone in real life, be prepared to get slapped across the face because it's really fucking rude. <laughs> All right, hey, should we dive you in? Use the safety of Zoom to get away with such <laughs> atrocities against me. <laughs> Let's dive into this movie. Los Angeles, 2019. There was an escape from the off-world colonies. They slaughtered... The assignment? Track down six manufactured humans. He's the best man for the job. But he may die trying to prove it. Harrison Ford is the Blade Runner. Blade Runner from 1982, directed by Sir Ridley Scott, one of the Scott brothers, one of the founders of Scott Free Productions, known for making such TV hits as Numbers. And Mm. to the best of my recollection, I think also the show Medium, but I can't remember, have not seen that show for 15 years. Cameron James, we're talking yeah. about Blade Runner. We watched the final cut on 4K UHD Blu-ray in my mm. home theater. Please read us the synopsis that you found out there for a segment I like to call Love That Logline. Love That Logline. Today we're talking about Blade Runner from 1982 by Ridley's Believe It or Not Scott. One of the greats. <laughs> one of the great... <laughs> Museum owners of this world loves an oddity. Oh, Ridley, baby. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. He's bad to the bone. <laughs> I found two two synopses on imdb.com, and they're both short. They're both submitted by people. Can I read both of them to you? Because I like them of both. Of course. Yeah, I got to hear them both. All right. This first one um, is by Matt McQuillan, which is a great name. Oh, God. Holy shit, this guy must get laid 24-7. This guy's always nothing. This guy's keeping it wet 24-7, 365. Matt and I'm only saying that because he posts synopsis on IMDb, so you know this guy hunk as spunk. This guy's hung down to the knee. This guy's rock hard, and this guy's pumping and thumping all day long. All right. <laughs> this is uh, from Matt McQuillan. Los Angeles, California, 2019. Rick Deckard of the LAPD's Blade Runner unit prowls the st- steel and microchip jungle of the 21st century for assumed wow. humanoids known as replicants. Replicants were declared illegal after a bloody mutiny on an off-world colony and are to be terminated upon detection. 
man's obsession with creating a being equal to himself has backfired. Oh, my God. That's good, right? That is so sick because that beautifully written. Really Max good. Quillen, my God. Yeah. Qu- Quillen by name, Quillen by nature. He's writing something quite beautiful. I um, And that's just the setup, right, to the world. That's the setup, but he gives us everything. And you know what? After reading wow. that, I don't even want to read the other one now because I think that one is a perfect place to end it. The other one is oh, very similar, wow. but it uses other language that I like, like cyberpunk. And stuff oh, like yes. that. I, I like all that kind of language. It's all quite fun to me. But Matt mm. McQuillan, you know, when I read that, I thought these science fiction fans know how to set up a little world for us. They know how mm. to draw us in. They're like, these are the key elements to draw you into the text. Now, you've heard what I have to say. Pop on the DVD and check out the rest of it for yourself. Yeah. It's a wonderful motion picture that many people in this world enjoy. I would say let's begin on that note. That beautiful synopsis gave us so much delicious world building that summons so much of what makes Blade Runner special. It is that cyberpunk energy that this film brings. This film is one of the most glorious freaking visual feasts I've ever Ever happened to gobble up in my time. I am in awe of this film. It is drenched in neon. And the way that the neon plays with every set being completely soaked. And I mm. think that's such a great technique. We see a lot of it starting to build up in the 60s and especially the 70s. I'm thinking of movies like The Warriors mm. where to that are completely set at night to kind of enrich the colors of those sets. Cinematographers would just absolutely soak the streets with like fire engines and fire hydrants to really get the colors and the lights to bounce off those streets. And I think Blade Runner probably is the best example of something that can be such a it, it, it's such like it seems like such an unimaginative technique, but when you see it in play, how much a difference wetting a set with water goes mm. to creating something that feels quite real and quite spectacular, I think it actually is what grounds all the visuals in a very realistic yet powerfully cinematic way. One of the most amazing, simple, practical effects of cinema is turning on a big old hose, spraying it on some bitumen. Good God, it looks good. It looks good. This movie looks good. It took me a long time to figure out what it is about Ridley Scott's visual style that 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 makes him unique. You know, like because mm. he's he's made a couple of science fiction movies. We know this, but he's also made some movies yes. grounded in reality, like Thelma and Louise. Do you know what? Weirdly, it wasn't until I watched Thelma and Louise with you a few mm. years ago that it kind of dawned on me that this is a man who loves to stuff the frame with detail. And that's mm. like that's something that he loves to do as a visual man is like he'll take a wide shot and go, I want every fucking centimeter of this frame filled with little things that you could look at that are just interesting mm. and detailed and exciting. And he obviously works with great production designers to do that. Alien, like the little elements of the ship are incredible in that. In this movie in particular, my God, so much of it. You can just like pause a frame like you're in English class in the mid to late 2000s mm-hmm. 
and just like look around it and go, oh yeah, there's like a fucking TDK sign over there. There's like a huge, uh, you know, like TV screen of a geisha that's the size of a skyscraper. Mm. There's a guy down here in the bottom right corner eating noodles and he's wearing five sets of goggles on his head. And yeah. it's like inc- that dude's wearing three watches. It's amazing. I just love it. I think that's where I feel about Ridley. Like what I try and kind of break down who he is as an artist. Because I think he's that person that is right at the midpoint between what we would consider an auteur, like an author that has a lineage through his filmography or through their filmography that we can kind of uh, note the things that interest them or the things that fascinate them or like the story of their filmography. And he's the midpoint between that and what I would consider a journeyman, someone who hops around genres. There's not quite that lineage in there, but we do see those things that fascinate him. And I think it's his visual style, for the most part, stays intact. It is kind of gargantuan. Like he has a huge scope and scale to most of his movies. And what the common element is, no matter how spectacular they are no matter how much he reaches for that spectacle i think he finds something to ground those elements together to form some kind of semblance of a lived in story world not quite a reality i'd say Mm. but a lived in story world and you know he talks about alien being inspired by star wars because he saw star wars for the first time he saw a science fiction picture that had that lived-in quality where things were grubby, things were dirty, things weren't always pristine like they are and stuff like 2001 A Space Odyssey. He could see like the the marks, the working-class nature of how things are put together, how things work. He brings that to Alien and then I think he overachieves it with Blade Runner. And have you ever seen any of his concept art that he did for Blade Runner when he was studying the script and stuff of like his no. images? They're freaking amazing. They're like, he he's inspired by a lot of like comic book artists like Mobius, a lot of French comic book artists is kind of like where he takes the imagery from. And he makes these like really big scale comic works of like what he saw in the world of Blade Runner. And it feels like the first true big origins of what we call cyberpunk like it looks Mm. so much in line with what happens in the movie but it also has like that kind of hand-drawn exaggeration that we see in comic books like you know hard-boiled and the stuff that would inspire the matrix in kind of that continued wave of cyberpunk into cinema i'm looking at some of this uh concept art now it's fucking awesome so cool i mean so he was so he was kind of like riffing on a visual language that already existed obviously with film noir i never really i didn't realize the comic book connection came before blade runner and then like when you look through the rest of his filmography he's got so many like clearly this is a style he quite likes he kind of revisits it again in a couple of other is it black rain is that the one that's like that mm. that other that michael douglas noir noir film that he kind of did yeah i think he is a bit of like a he obviously a noir fan with the way that he kind of brings this together and black rain it's michael douglas and andy garcia right yeah yeah i think it is yeah yeah, yeah it is it's andy garcia yeah. and kate capshaw 
Ooh. Oh, Kate Capshaw, Willie Scott herself, yes. Mrs. Spielberg. Yes, Mrs. Spielberg. And then, you know, he does some other noir stuff. American Gangster touches on that. Matchstick mm-hmm. Men has a little bit of the gritty element. But I think, like, it's the it's clearly these sort of, like, gritty, grounded, futuristic worlds that he's interested in. Taking, mm. like, taking really high concept worlds and then making them feel lived in and disgusting and <laughs> not even disgusting, mm. just, like, a little bit grubby, which I I just think it's fucking so cool to look at. I think it's also like the technological aspect that fascinates him because that's the kind of theme that we revisit throughout his career. Like it's hard to watch Prometheus and not feel that it's more of a sequel to Blade Runner than it is a prequel to Alien because it is the same kind of discussions about not just the origins of man, which I think is something that fascinates him a lot in that film, but the where man is going next, which is not just the stars. It is what happens to man next. Do Does humankind evolve? Does humankind, does humankind explore new synthetic bodies? And then what is human once that change happens? And that's something that obviously is explored here. And I remember studying this film in high school. And I actually don't think it was even until I was confronted with the sequel, Blade Runner 2049, in 2017 when it came out. Mm. I wasn't... I never freaking... I I thought uh, the replicants were robots. I didn't understand that. I I didn't even understand the term replicant. Like I thought there were replications of what humans are like. I didn't understand that they were more flesh and blood or whatever. I was kind of like, well, yeah, philosophically they're not human. Like philosophically they can be human because they clearly have some kind of free will and they do have some kind of emotions and they do have that but you know they got gizmos and gadgets underneath their kind of fake skin you thought they were like um, you thought they were like the terminator like a synthetic organism on top of a steel sexy skeleton and they put maybe put squibs throughout their body in case they get shot or something yeah they they fill them up with squibs they put con- fill up condoms with like a red like corn ketchup syrup and shit like that. Yeah, <laughs> ketchup, corn syrup, maybe a a chunky passada to get something really exciting going if they get shot. Yeah, but I just I didn't know that they were not um, like I just didn't understand that until the sequel, and I was like, oh fuck, fuck, I probably got a few, put got a few extra marks back in the day if I'd known that. Well, I mean, when you're when you're a teenager, it's like the easiest way to understand it is. Oh, okay, so they're they're robots, they're cyborgs mm. or whatever, but yeah, it's because it's kind of grubby and grosser to think, and the sequel goes into it quite a bit, like to think that yeah. these were like grown, these were like people yeah. that were grown, and that's something that is sort of happening now as well, like with o- organs being harvested and grown, and um, you know, ears and stuff being developed on the backs of mice and shit like that. Like mm. it's, it is kind of strange right. and interesting to think about. But Philip Cock Dick was doing it way back in the day. He was making those androids and letting them dream of electric sheep and whatever they have. And might I say, Cameron, is one of my life goals to whisper a secret into one of those rats with an ear on its back just Mm. to see what happens will it understand the secret as a human or will it misinterpret everything like a conniving mouse by the way i also want to say um do androids dream of electric sheep it 
is a book title that I think I've said more than any other book title in my life. And I've also mm. never read the book. I remember trying to read the book and I just couldn't quite wrap my head around it because it did feel different to the movie. I kind of went in expecting it to feel more like the Raymond Chandler novels that I love, but with Mm. a sci-fi tone, which I think this movie does so well. It is capturing those tones of stuff like early noir, like Raymond Chandler in the novels or, you know, Maltese Falcon, Dashiell Hammett, and then like the the visual language of noir films like Billy Wilder and stuff. And I found this out this week that do you know who... The original screenwriter of this film wanted cast as Deckard, his first choice, and who he wrote the dialogue with in mind. Paulie Shaw. The young baby Paulie Shaw, who had just been born at the comedy store in LA, was not in mind. It was Robert Mitchum. Oh, yeah, I can see that. I could see Mitchum doing this. And he played Philip Marlowe in the Mm. 70s adaptation of Farewell, My Lovely and The Big Sleep, I think, around that era. And he was still, I think, vital enough at that time where that is believable. But then I think Harrison Ford, this has got to be maybe his greatest work as an actor. It's pretty fucking great, isn't it? Harrison Ford's one of those actors that you have to remind yourself is an actor. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. he's he's like, it's like the Beatles. It's like, oh yeah, these these guys are just a band. They're human beings. Because to us, Harrison Ford has been a movie star forever Mm -hmm. and his face is iconic and his personality is iconic and he's played some of the biggest like popcorn blockbuster roles in history between Han Solo Mm -hmm. and Indiana Jones and the guy from What Lies Beneath, you know, three of the most iconic roles. He's played the president. He's played the fugitive. He's like, he is mm-hmm. Harrison Ford. And every now and then you have to remind yourself that this is a guy who's reading a script and making artistic choices because mm-hmm. it often doesn't, often he's playing a man in motion. But this is like a man, kind of a man who's inactive and inert mm. and can't really even grapple with the realities of his life or his existence. And then by the end of the film, obviously the question lingering over him is, did he have any free will in this at all? Does he mm. exist? Is he a real person? You know, it's it's interesting to watch Harrison Ford play sort of a, like a passive character in many ways. The big climax of it's- the movie is him dangling from a building with broken fingers on one hand being saved by a dying you know human in inverted commas that's the that's the big climax it's the big action movie climax is this man monologuing to him while he's dying and harrison ford is just listening it's pretty great you bring up such a great point of him being an inactive character and i think that as a detective film his main goal is to examine to investigate and i think this film one of harrison ford's contributions before you know we get into the mess of the theatrical cuts versus director's cuts the scripts had uh, the scripts had narration which is an homage to noir films but harrison wanted to strip that back and focus on 
visualizing the detective work instead of just narrating what has happened or what he had discovered. He wanted to see him doing the procedural elements of, you know, enhancing images, rummaging through drawers. And, you know, a great scene that feels like Fletch, where he starts doing an impression of a character, a goofball guy. Excuse me, miss. May I please come in here and (laughs) ask you a few questions? I think that's maybe my favorite scene in the movie. Because Harrison Ford's funny as fuck. And, like, you don't don't really get to see much of it in the work that he does. There's bits Mm -hmm. of... I, I think Indiana Jones is a funny character. Like, he's... Yeah. That character is designed to almost be Wile E. Coyote or Bugs Bunny or something. And this part of the movie feels the most like Indiana Jones to me. Like when he's putting on the Nazi uniform and pretending to be German and stuff. I love it. I I just had a lightning bolt moment, like a revelation of something I had forgotten. Um, but you brought it up by just saying something. And when Star Wars The Force Awakens came out... Me and dearest friend of the podcast, Angus Truscott, went to a special fan event, which was at the Opera House Forecourt in Mm. Sydney the day before the movie was coming out. Harrison Ford was there and he was speaking... And it was a, it was not a Q and A because you couldn't really put your hand up and ask a question. I think you, people could have submitted questions before, but it was like the press run up, and the event was hosted by Jay Lagaya, who is in Attack of the Clones. He plays one of like Padme's guards or whatever. Mm. He's the guy with the eye patch. Um, Captain Typho is his character's name. And Jayla Guy, he in Australia, we know him, we love him. He's kind of like a celebrity who was on play school. He's a great children's entertainer, beautiful singing voice, charismatic guy. And one of the questions that he asked him was like the last question he asked Harrison Ford. Like all the rest were very scripted type questions. This was one you could tell was a Jay exclusive this was the mm. only one that jay would have concocted himself or jyla guy <laughs> would have concocted himself and he asked him out of all your characters which one do you think would make the best stand-up comedian wow and you could i could fully see everything like my brain was like the matrix in this moment where i saw everything that was happening <laughs> i could see every movement i was like sherlock holmes i know everything that led up to this point was jay had been preparing for this for ages it's such a big opportunity to interview one of the biggest stars in the world on stage he's not an interviewer he's an actor and i think him being in front of that crowd and cracking jokes and like riffing and stuff like that he's like oh i'm a stand-up comedian and all his brain is thinking about is stand-up comedy at that point and he's like well harrison ford's characters are funny this is what's in my brain right now i would ask him which one he thinks is a stand-up comedian and the answer that harrison ford gave was just like i don't know (laughs) i've never thought about it none of them (laughs) Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. what's Indiana Jones going to do with, like, the fucking cat skills? He's just, like, <laughs> doing the Borscht Belt? What the fuck? That's ridiculous. <laughs> Is he doing the post-war cabaret scene in, in freaking <laughs> Germany at that time in Berlin? What's he going to do? He's in Weimar, Weimar, Germany? I don't know about that. That's He's so crazy. Deckard stopping into a dirty open mic downstairs? Is he going down to the comedy store in L.A.? <laughs> I reckon uh, if I had to answer that question, I would say, um, you know, I reckon Deckard would be a good comic. 
He'd be like um, a Marin type. Yeah, he would have some stories. He'd be like sitting on the stool, you know, telling some fucking tales about shit that he's seen. He's like, yeah, so I might be a fucking replicant. I don't know. <laughs> Roy Batty doing setup. I've seen things you couldn't even freaking imagine, dude. Like, I've, I've seen bombed up on the shores and- of Orion. <laughs> <laughs> Everything gets lost like bits in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck. That's a stupid question from Jailer Guy. <laughs> an, and I forgot about it entirely it's a huge until swing. you said that. I was like, it's oh. like one of those big swing questions where you're like, this might unlock something interesting from the person if I make them think about their work in a different mm-hmm. way. Or they might reckon with it for a second and then be like, I don't fucking know or care. Fuck you, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it's too big of a risk with a known curmudgeon like Harrison Ford who does not like doing interviews and stuff. I know. But, you know, you Jay, we got to salute you for that because out of everyone in the world, that's the question I would have wanted to know as well. So but, good on you, brother. But I do want to say about Harrison that, like, it to me it is interesting to see him emote because mm. his characters are mostly known for being standoffish, and maybe a bit cocky and maybe like they keep emotion at arm's length. So you, mm. you rarely there are there aren't many roles out there where you see him feel things. Maybe witness is an example mm. where you watch him grow to love someone and to love a community. Um and this movie has elements of it too where you see him start to like uh like for the first time probably ever grapple with the fact that his job is to kill people. Like his job is to terminate, um, you know, like living things. And he's never really thought about it until the events that we see in this movie. And it is, it's kind of nice because I, I just don't, I don't think he's one of those actors that, that ever really lets his emotional guard down. So it's nice to see it in this movie. I can't think of many other roles where he does it. I think this kind of kicks off an era for him, which is the one that goes all the way through the 90s, which is almost the thriller Harrison Ford, the guy who is flustered, the guy Mm. who is on the brink. And I think that he kind of unlocks it with this one because before this, he's doing basically the Errol Flynn stuff and he does it better than anyone has ever done it, which is the lead of an adventure or the swashbuckler. I think he is the greatest swashbuckler ever, and he's only done it twice, and they're his two most well-known roles. Yeah, I mean, he's fantastic in them. And I love him in thriller mode, too. I love The Fugitive. I love Air Force One. Mm-hmm. I watched What Lies Beneath uh, a couple of years ago, I guess, during one of the lockdowns, and mm-hmm. I was amazed by him in that, too. Like, it's a really great performance. He really taps into a side of himself that maybe gets hinted at in some of these roles. You know, like a lot of people take umbrage with Indiana Jones being quite forceful with women. And I would Mm. say there's a scene in this movie that uh, verges on uncomfortable too, where he's like essentially forcing um, the replicant to like sleep with him. Or he's like, Mm. it's kind of, it's on, it verges on the line of like, is this, You know, is he forcing her or is she playing hard to get? It's really, like, it's a hard thing to kind of read. What Lies Beneath takes all those elements and makes them quite literal, where it's just like, hey, this guy killed his wife. 
and this guy's going to kill his next wife. And he's a bad guy and he's a violent guy towards women. And it really, I think he plays it so well because he's scary, but he's also, he's also like, uh, like vulnerable. And there's moments in the movie where he's genuinely afraid and he's like being haunted and tortured. It's, it's really great. I, I think that Harrison Ford needs to let his fucking guard down more because he has mm. it within him to be a really good, vulnerable actor. He just doesn't do it mm. much. There's this quote that I always think about with him that he feels Irish as a person and Jewish as an actor. And those are like his two heritages and how I think he kind of feels captured by each of them and how he feels he expresses himself through each of them i find that to be like a fascinating quote i can't quite unpack it but it's something that feels really true authentic and accurate i've heard that sound he said that a few times it's like one of his go-to sound bites um and i can re- i get it i also come from irish scottish stock and there is a real stoicism there where you you are quite unwilling to play your hand and to show your emotions and when you feel something the instinct is to bottle it up rather than express it i can relate to that i don't know what he means by jewish as an actor because like when you hear that quote is your first image woody allen because that's who i think of i'm like what Mm. you're nothing like that woody's like a bundle of raw nerves but then i thought maybe he means james can't Maybe he's like thinking, yeah. oh, James Kahn is the Jewish actor that I'm <laughs> talking about. Yeah. Another, ma- another man well, who's like has a great well of vulnerability inside them that you mm. rarely get to see. And when you do see it, it's fantastic, but mostly plays a guy that's kind of a, like a tough guy who's you know stumbling out of his depth. I think the way that I've always read that quote is that, you know, one is an ethnicity, one is also a religion. And, you know, while Irish is so connected to, like, Irish Catholicism, Judaism, it's a religion where I think maybe that's his connection to God that he's speaking about. Yeah, that's interesting. I reckon he he would never, he wouldn't have even thought of it deep enough like that. He he really Damn, seems... that was my Jayla Gaia moment where I read more into something um, than is intended. I think he's a guy who really does not want to examine why he does what he does. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why he's so standoffish in interviews and stuff. Because it's like, to him, that's unpacking the joy or the magic of it. He just likes doing it. You know, he doesn't want to examine it and and intellectualize it. One thing that you brought up about the character of Deckard, which I think is key, is the idea of him being an inactive protagonist. And Mm. that is something that is common in noir films because basically a noir film, if it is a detective noir, is an examination of a story that has happened before where the main players of the story are existing in either they're not existing anymore, they're dead or covering their tracks or lying to the protagonist in some kind of way. And this one, the actual protagonist is probably Roy Batty, played by Rutger Mm -hmm. Hauer. And if we are to examine this as a text in time that is in conversation with Frankenstein... He is the monster. He is Tyrell's Mm. creation. And he is someone whose goal is simple. Yeah, it is intense. 
He wants more life, fucker or father, if you were to study this in class and you father have to fucker. listen to that line and you know that that line has been changed around and interpreted through each of those cuts in the final cut. Very clearly, it's just dubbed. It says father. <laughs> he just says father in it. Yeah. Not ambiguous yeah. at all. I know. I've gone back and forth on which version I like, you know. like uh, Me too. I think it's incredibly poetic and quite beautiful to have him say, I want more life, father. I love that. Like mm-hmm. when I hear that, I get chills. I go, wow, that's that's all of us talking to God. Like we, that's all yeah. we want. We're all scared of death and we all are begging for more of it, right? We want more life. But, but there's something so fucking cool and badass and off the rails about your own creation calling you fucker. That like yeah. you're out, you know you're about to die. If something you've built and 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 nurtured breaks into your fucking penthouse pyramid and says, "I want more life, fucker," and then kisses you on the lips and fucking pokes your eyes out, that's one of the most badass things in the world. I like them both. And you know what I like about it is like Rutger Hauer made a choice to pronounce it in an ambiguous way. And he's talked mm. about it, and I think that is so... To me, when I hear shit like that, like an actor made a choice to imbue ambiguity into a word or a line, I love that shit. That's mm. art. That is art right there. That's someone saying, I want you to hear whatever you want to hear in this one word. Love it. His performance is absolutely stunning. I think he's it sick. is... One of the most effective, great performances in the entire science fiction genre. And when he breaks through into the movie, and you've heard about him before, you've heard who he is, but when he breaks through, there's not a character that feels more human than him because he is unpredictable. Mm. He is this live wire. And reading and listening and watching about his performance, you know, this one monologue comes up a lot, Tears in the Rain speech. And this is something that he brought to the table himself. Like, this speech was in part written in the script as his demise, his monologue demise. And when they're doing the table read, he throws in the line, like, memories in the rain, like, getting lost. Mm. It becomes eventually tears in the rain. But in the table read, he says this line and then winks at the screenwriter. And the screenwriter was annoyed that he was rewriting his stuff, but it's undeniable. It's one of the great lines. <laughs> yeah. And it's something that is just such an earworm that stays with you forever. I think it's just, it's magnificent stuff. He brought so much to this role. It's so, you, you can look at Roy Batty as the blueprint for what every uh, like cinema bad guy in a big blockbuster thing is aspiring to now. Like, mm-hmm. You know, all these, like, Marvel baddies, like Thanos and whatever, yeah. and the and the guy from Black Panther and stuff. Yeah, Killmonger. They're all, they all come back to this, I reckon. They're all a, a, mm-hmm. essentially the bad guy who we feel sad for and who mm. part of us wants to succeed or at least we understand their plight. You know, it's so mm. fucking cool and it's tragic and I guess it is Frankenstein, you know, because it's a tragic villain who knows he's about to die and just accepts it. And in his final moment, saves the hero. Come on. This is the best shit. Mm. He's got a fucking nail through his hand. He's Jesus Christ, yeah. folks. 
folks. Oh my gosh, folks! He's, Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ folks! <laughs> he's the true. He, it's it, he's a great. It's a great performance. It's also batshit mm-hmm. insane, which I love. Like in that that final. Um, like the last 20 minutes of the movie where he's kind of stalking Deckard through that weird gothic New York mm. <laughs> matrix yeah. looking house. He's sort of, um, he's like uh, the roadrunner or something. Like he's, he's yeah. stripped down to just little bike shorts and like sneakers. <laughs> and he's like bouncing around, making all these weird noises. He bashes his head through the wall at one point, like a cartoon character. It's kind of crazy. It's like a really, yeah. it's a truly cartoonish, batshit performance, but it's still, it's still like so engaging and so cool. And man, he's sick. It's incredible. I think before we wrap things up, there's a couple of other things I just think are so worthy to note. Uh, that, of course, the score by Vangelis, the Greek composer, mm. rest in peace. We lost Vangelis this year. Um, Straight up, probably, it's one that I kind of try to discount a lot because I'm like, oh, people love the Blade Runner score. It's undeniable. I think it is one of the best pieces of film music ever made. And watching it together with you yesterday on that new 4K, Mm. fucking hell. It just sounds gargantuan. And it is so inspiring at creating and pushing forward the tones of noir into that synthetic world with his synths and digital soundscapes that are just sensational. But more than any of the intense music, the exciting music, I think is that Rachel's theme, that love theme, is just Mm. one of the most glorious, beautiful, serene pieces of music that does all of the cinematic heavy lifting of that scene to give you those complex feelings of your what you're watching without that music. You're like, what is this? This is fucking creepy and weird. But it's that music that creates the conflict of emotions that is important for noir, which is that kind of femme fatale-ness of it all and like the encapturing of the emotions of those scenes. Yeah, the score's out of this world. It's off-world it's fucking amazing. I just, I love it. And you're right. It's almost like hack to talk about how good the Vangelis score is. But it's, yeah, you just have to, every now and then you have to sit back and go, yep, it's the one. It's the fucking one. Mm-hmm. It's so good. We were talking about like how Ridley was able to ground the science fiction look with like a real world feel or a lived in feel. Partly with that is them maximizing and playing with Los Angeles locations and using real world locations that are from like the Art Deco period and Mm. bringing them into like this neo-noir, neon-noir, I should say, or pro-noir because neo-noir is like late period noir. This is looking forward. So it's probably pro instead of neo-noir. And it's uh, uh, this whole idea of taking like what was familiar in noir, the Art Deco period, and then bolstering it. I always think about those scenes in the Bradbury building that is like the climax of this film and how that is like such an iconic location appears in so many different movies. But I think Blade Runner owns that location. And a big recommendation that I would give to people is this great video essay. It's a three-hour video essay film that's very, very beautiful 
Cameron, you would love it. And it's called Los Angeles Plays Itself. It is a three-hour video essay that goes through all the films and the notable locations in Los Angeles and talks about how Los Angeles has been portrayed in film throughout the entire history of cinema because it's the city of movies. And it is so beautiful. It was recently restored, which means I had to get all these clips from all these old movies and bring them together into high definition. It's been very hard to find, but someone recently just uploaded it to YouTube. So it is accessible. I chucked it in our Facebook group the other day when I discovered it. Uh, beautiful, beautiful movie. And I love seeing those locations we talked about, especially the one which is like Tyrell's apartment or his home. They talk about that a lot in that film as well. Um, but I think that is what grounds everything. These real world locations that are part of our own history, our own architectural history in the world, and then bolstering it with science fiction. So good. Yeah, I, mean, I love it. I love that there's parts of it. We were talking about this while we were watching it. Parts of it look Egyptian. Parts of it look Roman, Art Deco. It's just a, it's so good. It, it makes me so excited to see like a blend of all these different aesthetic styles. But they all sort of feel at home together, you know. I actually I wanted to ask you a question. Have you revisited Blade Runner twenty forty nine at all, and and how does it stack up? Because I I don't mm. think I've watched it since we saw it at the movies, whenever that was. And I had a pretty negative reaction to it then. I remember seeing it and I I basically bounced off the tone of the movie, I'd say, because it was I found it so slow and so ponderous and because it was still playing in the same thematic wheelhouse that fucking science fiction has played in for a hundred years, which is what is it to be human? And I felt like we didn't need to slow down that much and look at Ryan Gosling's face pondering those things for that amount of time. And I just found it so frustrating. I revisited it this week in anticipation of this podcast. And I I got to say, I don't think I've ever swung harder on a film in my life. I loved it. Hmm. I think going into it with just some kind of concept of what it was going to be without any, without like, with knowing what it would be rather than anticipating what I thought it could be or what it should be or anything like that. I really, really deeply connected to it this time. And I just found it to be just all the things we've talked about Blade Runner this time with it being like this gargantuan image. I think that it is more a story that kind of matches the scale of its visuals. While it still has like this personal investigation in there, the outer story itself matches the visuals to that scale and I think that is what I got out of it this time I think it's spectacular and I think it is worth catching up with because I think you even liked it much more than I did at the time I was I was quite defensive yeah we watched it we saw it I remember you came out of it a bit sour and I remember I I agreed with you that it was not raising any new questions Mm. and that whole idea of what is human is like literally every science fiction text and it's it is i actually think the older i get i understand why we keep coming back to it as a mm. as a science fiction question because it's it's the only question what are we what is our purpose um what makes us us you know and especially as technology evolves um be it through transhumanism or through mm-hmm. artificial intelligence 
That is a question that is exciting to keep asking. But I I did also agree with you that it was a bit slow and and I was I think I was maybe kind of like, oh yeah, isn't it's sort of the same movie. Like it's just mm. hey, this time maybe maybe he's the son of Deckard and Rachel. Yeah. Or maybe he's not, you know, like Okay, cool. Who gives a shit? Can replicants have babies? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Don't care. Don't really care. That was the cynicism that I had originally where I was like, yeah, it's the same questions over and over again, yet this time they're insular questions about the fucking universe yeah, that exists about the only rules, in these films. The rules yeah. of this world that you've made up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like 40 I, years <laughs> later, we're asking some, rule, some rules questions. Oh, okay, sick. I don't care. You made it up. It can be whatever you want mm-hmm. it to be. That's kind of like what it what got me all riled up about it, like why I didn't dig it. So I'm like, well, who gives a fuck? It's just this shit in a movie rather than like philosophical pontifications. But then going back to it this time, I saw it more as continue. And it's what I liked about it the first time as well, but I just freaking adored it this time was that it is the continual building of these worlds, like how this world continues to build and evolve. And it just the aesthetic of it all, really enhanced every aspect of the film for me this time. Yeah, Um, that's interesting. I'll give it a watch. Honestly, Cam, this week I might prefer it to the original. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I'll give it another watch. I always like the idea of like uh, fighting decay or fighting your own Mm. mortality. And I think from memory, the sequel was maybe more about like, yeah, fighting the decay that's coming in mm. these like replicants and I don't know. Yes. I, I like it. I find it interesting and I, I'll give it another watch, but um, and the kind of I don't know. environmental messages of the original evolve a little bit as well. Like that is such a big part of the original film. That's more in the world building than the direct story is that everything's in decay. Everything's in decline. Mm. The world is dying. And I think that is continued on when you go deeper into the world, further into its future. You're like, fuck, everything is fucked up. Like I think about those scenes in Las Vegas yeah. that are based on that Sydney dust storm mm. of 2009, which I'll never forget because that was my last day of high school and I didn't go. I didn't go to my last day of high school. I was like, I don't want to go out of that shit. I'm just going to stay home. Yeah. But, um. It's pretty unreal. I think the only thing that might hold you back from loving it is, unfortunately, there's no J.S. Sebastian, who, mm. whenever that toy maker came on screen this time, yeah. it was one of the great thrills of my movie-watching life with you, where you would somehow, this one character, this small role <laughs> in this movie, the toy maker guy, you knew every one of his lines and you would say it as if you were performing it sarcastically. You're like, yeah, yeah, I know that kind of thing. Yeah, I make little toys and stuff. But you knew every line of his dialogue going into this movie. <laughs> Fascinating character, tragic character, destined to die, destined to be alone, but he's the key. He serves He serves a great purpose. And I love that actor, and I do love a little sad sack southern fucker who's just like, you know, he helps them, and they kind of like him. Now, I find him quite adorable as a character, <laughs> J.F. Sebastian. Yeah, you, you, you loved him. <laughs> William Sanderson's the actor. He's from Deadwood and a yeah. bunch of stuff. But I've never seen anything like that where there's one side character forgotten to the rest of the world. <laughs> you knew every line. Well, I you know that's it. my shit. I'm obsessed with all the little tiny side characters in any movie. Like, 
that have an inner life because we rarely get to see them, but I find them fascinating. They're the shit that I'm drawn oh, to. God. Well, Cameron, we are talking about a great character, William Sanderson. And, you know, sorry to spoil it. We have decided to not give this award to William Sanderson, even though he epitomizes a character actor. He yeah. has written a memoir, Cameron, mm. called Yes, I'm That Guy, Love The it. Rough and Tumble Life of a Character Actor by William Sanderson. I'm going to read it. I'm going to buy it on Kindle, and I'm not wow. sponsored by Kindle, but yes, I have been bragging about buy- recently buying a Kindle because, as you know, I like to declutter. I like to downsize. Mm-hmm. I like to get rid of all the crap from my life. I'm the yeah. opposite of you. The more I feel like the more stuff I get rid of, somehow the yeah. more you gain. Maybe that's it. You're like my freaking portrait of Dorian Gray. Like the more yeah. you get rid of, the more I gain. Well, I'm an analog guy. I'm the freaking bot. That hardback. I'm gonna buy the freaking hardback signs by him. Dude. I was a hardback guy one. too. I was an analog book guy for a long time. But then mm-hmm. you reach a certain point where you realize yeah. I just don't have the room. I don't have the space. Yeah. Kindle, you get it, you get rid of it. Go on, skis. Takes no time. Go on, skis, brother. <laughs> I'm going to well, read it. tell you who, who we are giving that Oscar to for best character actor. I think that I'm so happy to bestow this golden man upon mm. this man because when I think of character actors, I actually think that he might be the number one of all time. He yeah. truly may be the greatest character actor in the history of the movies. He's amazing. I I light up whenever he's on screen. I get excited whenever I hear his voice. He's done a lot of a lot of fantastic work over the years. He's in one of my favorite feature films of all time, Wayne's World 2. Mm-hmm. We're talking of course about James Hong. James Hong. God, he's good. Instantly recognizable. Fuck, he's good. Most recently, uh, like, fucking lit up the screen and everything everywhere all at once. Mm-hmm. But his career is insane. Like, to look at this man's filmography, holy smokes. Done a lot of amazing work over the years, like, in, like, all over the world, basically. He's, he's a global actor. He's 93 years old now. Fuck. He's appeared in everything from Big Lo- Big Trouble in Little China to Kung Fu Panda to Kung Fu Panda 2 to RIPD, the Rest in Peace yeah. Department, a favorite of Cameron and I. And he Which is we've never a, seen, like, by the way. <laughs> we've never seen, but we love the title. We, we love, love the, the idea of it. Cover. <laughs> we love the idea of RIPD. We love the idea that's like Ghostbusters meets Men in Black. That's awesome. That's so good. And we'll never watch it, but we love it. We love that it's out there. And we love that James Hong's in it. I love that he's in mm-hmm. Mulan. Fucking love Mulan. I love that he's in Tango and Cash, one of the worst films of all time that I love. I, I just think he's fucking fantastic. He's got such an amazing voice, such an amazing screen mm-hmm. presence. He plays a hard ass, like a judgmental yes. prick, prick like no one else on the planet. The thing about him that is so absolutely thrilling and why I think he's one of the great characters of all time, it's not just like a filmography that has like 20,000 credits. It is his skill in both enhancing dramatic works and playing in comedy 
so adeptly. Like Wayne's World 2, amazing. But the one that I always come back to and think about is not just all the blurrings of the lines he does and stuff like, you know, uh, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. I adore him in the Chinese restaurant episode of Seinfeld. I was just I about to say that. Yeah, I was just so about to say. Freaking, he's so funny in that so episode. So funny in that I episode. That. And we, we were re-watching that recently and just both like went, mm-hmm. oh, fuck yeah, James Hong. I forgot he was in this. Mm. God, he's good. I just fucking love him. He's so he's so good. He's going to be one of those actors that when he passes away, yeah. it'll hit me. You know what I mean? Like it'll be, yeah. it'll be a hard one because he's just brought me so much joy my entire life. And he is someone that I actually do predict. You know, he's ninety three years old. I think that it is so plausible we do see him receive an honorary Oscar mm. actually at the Academy Awards in the near future because his life is the history of cinema. He was born in 1929 and he's been in movies forever and he's been in everyone has at least one movie that he's been in that they just love and they love him for being part of it. I think that he's someone that truly deserves like a career retrospective honor more than the big movie stars and stuff. Mm. He has populated the worlds of every film that people adore. So true. It's so funny that you you brought up Big Trouble in Little China and like he's the main antagonist in that movie. And I just, you know, it's like that's, I think of the tiny roles before I think of that one. I think of the tiny yeah. little parts that he's in and things. And then you go, oh, yeah, fuck, he's, like, amazing in Big Trouble in Little China, too, and he's, like, a scene stealer. God, the guy the guy rules. Great voice actor, great physical actor. I love him, and I'm happy to give him this Oscar on our podcast, and I look forward to him receiving an honorary Oscar in the future. I really think that he will, and I hope he does. Um, perhaps even the best supporting nod for everything, everywhere, all at once. That is not out of the realm of possibility. That would be Especially so when we, cons- we consider all the infinite realities out there. Surely it happens in a good two dozen of them. But we are going to give away another Oscar. And this is probably an Oscar on behalf of the New South Wales Department of Education for mm. the greatest hunk in history. And we are bestowing mm. it upon Harrison Ford. The New South Wales yep. Department of Education is fucking obsessed with this guy. They had, in my year alone, us in advanced English studying Blade Runner, and it's as a text in time compared to Frankenstein, standard English, also studying a Harrison Ford text. They were doing Witness. Yeah, yeah. People studied Witness. I did, uh, when I was in year 12, I did three units of religion. Because mm-hmm. I went to a religious high school, so I had to do at least two units of religion. But I chose to do an extra unit because it was essentially wow. history. And I found it fascinating. Yes. And part of it, guess what? I watched some freaking Indiana Jones. What the heck? Yeah, because that's all about like a guy who's obsessed with different religious artifacts, believe it or not. And so I watched oh some freaking Indiana Jones in year 12. So there's people in the New South Wales Department of Education, someone who's picking the text that we all look at, someone mm-hmm. is fapping away to Harrison Ford <laughs> on a daily basis. I once in the library as well, when I was scouring the books, we had a t- 
tiny bullshit film section that sucked ass in my library at school. But one of the books, there were a few books in there that I remember that one was like, there was a biography of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Mel Gibson that were like 20 pages long. They were written like children's books. I'm like, awesome. what is this? I was fascinated by them. But then I found a book which was dissection of Star Wars that was printed by the New South Wales Department of Education. It was like a syllabus text, like a supporting text. And like, you know, when you get those Shakespeare plays and stuff that are like printed by the Department of Education, it was like that for Star Wars. So I'm like, these, they obsessed with this guy. That's so weird. So congratulations, Harrison Ford. Someone in New South Wales who works high up in the mm-hmm. Department of Education has jacked it to you at least at least yeah. three or four times. I do have an auntie that works in education, but tertiary, so not connected. But I do remember one time watching the Oscars at my house with her as a child. Uh, it was an Oscars party my parents were throwing. And when Harrison Ford came on screen, she sh- said, oh my God, I want his shoes under my bed. Yeah, so what she means by that is that she wants to sleep with him and then he stays mm-hmm. the night and he puts his shoes under her bed and presumably puts his pants, underwear, and shirt over a chair somewhere else. On in a the chair. Room. Yeah. <laughs> and but I, but the, but obvious. the point of it is that she wants to mm-hmm. sleep with Harrison Ford, mm-hmm. probably penetrative sex. Dangle that little fucking earring he's got. Dangling yeah. there. You yeah. love that earring. Yeah. Um, that, I've never forgot that phrasing. I think it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Shoes I want his shoes under, under my bed. Yeah, and his dick in my vagina. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll settle for anything that he wants. After all, he's a tremendous star and one of the greatest hunks, according to the New South Wales Department of Education. <laughs> Cameron, that brings us to our end of a discussion of Blade Runner, one of the great science fiction classics of all time. Next week on the podcast, we are sticking to this date in history, which another iconic science fiction film whose influence is just as great on the genre of sci-fi as Blade Runners is that came out on the exact same day and flopped just as fucking hard as it did at that time. We're going to be talking about John Carpenter's remake, The Thing. Can't wait. Love The Thing. Here's the thing by Alec Baldwin. With <laughs> Here's the thing. I love the thing. <laughs> That's my thing. I love the thing. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about the thing, probably doing another Alec Baldwin impression at some point in time during <laughs> it. And uh, that is not going to quite be the close-up for this miniseries. There might be one more that we're holding back mm. to wrap up the summer of 1982, this mini-series we've been doing on Total Reboot. And then we'll talk to you about what we have planned in the future for this podcast and for our audio work together. But in the meantime, please watch Finding Jesus. The first episode is out now. Uh, It is our exploration into the world of Kanye Quest 3030, a mysterious video game that may have been used as a recruitment tool for a new age cult. It's a documentary. It's a comedy. It's freaking silly. It's funny. We've been very touched by all the awesome messages people have been sending us since it's come out. Yeah, and if you uh, you know if you've been listening along, we're doing an after show on this very podcast feed with David Alatz, aka the archivist at uh, the Neue State, Todd Neue State, 
and uh, we're willing to answer questions that you have for us. So if you watch along with Finding Eases and you have some questions you'd like to ask us, you can, uh, you know, tweet them at us or send them to our Instagrams. I'm at I am Cameron James. Alexi is at This Is Alexi. And David will pick and choose his favorite questions and ask them us on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Please do send them to us. Uh, in the meantime, just watch that. That's it. That's mm. what we've got to promote. Mm-hmm. Check out the Patreon. We did a great episode diving into CADS, the Character Actor Dining Society. And very soon, there will be an episode next week where I talk to comedian Tim Clark about going through and watching every Best Picture winner of all time and watching them all. I think that's something that probably every listener of this podcast has at once at least thought about doing. This guy was actually crazy enough to freaking do it. <laughs> thank you so much guys we love you and we'll talk to you soon and please watch finding Jesus on youtube grass house all the links are in the show notes and god bless cinema the greatest that ever was